we once again come to our time this morning, our time in worship, when we worship our Lord through the preaching of his word. Few things excite me or energize me as much as the exposition of his word. By it, the Lord's goodness is revealed. By it, the Lord's people are encouraged. And by it, the Lord's will is accomplished. And so when we turn these pages week after week, I see it as a very special endeavor, one in which we gather together to hear the Lord speak to us through his written word. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled, The Christian Migration, Life as a Christian Sojourner. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. And while I will only focus on two verses, for the sake of context, I want to begin in verse 6 and read through verse 15 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord reads, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You may be seated. The story of Matthew 7 goes that a man died and standing before the Lord, he cried out, Lord, Lord, to which the Lord responded, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The man says, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And the Lord responded, depart from me. I never knew you. And so the man cries out again. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And the Lord responds again, Depart from me, I never knew you. And in desperation, the man pleads with the Lord, 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 did we not do many mighty works in your name? And once again, the Lord responds, Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Many will claim to do good works in the name of the Lord, but few actually may be converted. Outwardly, their good deeds may even show some sort of goodness that they they might think of God. They may even teach of the goodness of God, but inwardly, they've never been truly born again. While we were living in Argentina, we had a guest come over, and this guest wanted an Argentine soccer jersey. And so we headed off to the district where they sold all these things, and we looked and browsed at multiple stores. And while browsing those stores, it became very clear that there was a great discrepancy in prices. Finally, one shop owner offered us a jersey that was $75 U.S. And so I asked him, why are you selling us this one when the one next to it that looks exactly the same is only $20? That is three times the price. And he responded, Esta es una copia buena. Una copia buena. Literally, this one is a good copy. A good copy. Indeed, they looked almost indistinguishable. One seemed to be the exact match to the other. But one was the authorized version, and the other was merely a copy made by somebody that they could sell at a cheaper price. Closer examination would reveal that this copy was indeed flawed, even though they looked very much the same. It was especially flawed in quality. It would not take long for this one to become threadbare and worn. And that's what it is with life. Our Lord warns us of false teachers. He warns us of false converts who are only good copies. They appear genuine, but fail the test of examination. In the words of James, these individuals are divided individuals. They are indistinguishable from a genuine Christian at first glance. But after a few few uses in the world, their garments become threadbare and threadworn. And they begin to expose them true, their true selves. Such a person carries, or carries Christ's cross on Sunday and condemns Christ to the cross Monday through Saturday. This attitude is of a person who is more settled here than he is excited about there. It is the person whose comforts are in this world, and his comforts are greater in this world than his or her confidence is in the world that is to come. As citizens of heaven, a genuine believer cannot establish residency here. The Lord has called us to a migration from the earthly to the heavenly. We live as sojourners. We live as transients. And we're simply making our way from one homestead to another. Our earthly dwelling is simply a temporary residence for a time. And so the sojourner cannot be rooted here. He is never able to become firmly entrenched in the way of life here. 
by establishing roots through a job, through friends, through a family, through hobbies. Because all of that will pass away when it comes time for heaven. The sojourner cannot build a home. A home implies permanence an inattention to dwell long-term in the same place. But the Lord has already built a home for those who follow him in heaven. And a sojourner cannot become established in the ways of the world. Faith implies being a follower of Christ, not a follower of the culture. Our text this morning comes from the Apostle Paul. And his words this morning formulate the life of a sojourner. From this text, believers pinpoint what it means to live life as a foreigner in a foreign land. These words call believers to live not as followers of anything except of Christ. Verse 6 here marks a great transition in the text of Colossians. We're moving from the introduction that spans all of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. And now Paul gets to the priority of his writing. It is here that we enter the bulk of Paul's teaching in the book of Colossians. Does that scare you? We just spent six months going through the introduction, and now we're getting to the bulk of the teaching? How long is it going to take for the rest? This book is an incredible piece of literature. It's an incredible piece of literature for the Christian reader. And if Paul can indeed pack so much into his introduction, think about what it is we're about to read. Can you anticipate the profundity of what we're about to come across in in Colossians? And so we begin here at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If Chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 4, verse 6 are the body of the letter of Colossians. I would tell you these verses are the heart of that body. They are the pinpointing of what Paul is trying to say in the whole letter. And so I want you to note first the Christ of verse 6. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk. In him. The Christian sojourner is defined by his Christ. Seated at the center of this verse is the one who is seated at the center of heaven Christ Jesus, the Lord. The text begins with that word, therefore. And it is always well said that when you see the word, therefore, you must ask, what is it there for? In his introductory words, The Apostle Paul has summarized both the content and the character of his ministry. Paul proclaims nothing but Christ, that is his content. And he does so in a shepherding manner, in a way that reflects the good shepherd, that is Christ. He proclaims that Jesus Christ is the principle over all things in chapter 1. Indeed, Christ is both the truthful one, And the true one, meaning all that he says is true, but all that he is is true also, because he is truth. His perfection stands in contrast to the imperfection of the world. Therefore, 
Because Christ has been proven the true one, the false teachers are now unveiled as erroneous. Paul tells the Colossians they must not walk in the way of these false teachers. Instead, they must walk in a way that shows or as though they have received Christ. Walking in the New Testament always denotes a way of life. In the gospel and in Acts, the concept of walking is used to convey those who live in accordance and observance of the Jewish traditions. As Paul converses with James in Acts chapter 21, Paul tells James, They have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, or walk according to our customs, that is, the Jewish customs. But now, by this point, walking has taken on a new meaning. No longer is walking about walking in the Jewish customs or in observance of the Jewish laws. Here, walking means to walk in Christ. In his own words, Jesus describes it this way, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. In the next chapter, verse 5, he will use the word abide. That is John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, to abide in me, and that is Christ's description of what it means to walk. The phrasing of this text here is very specific. It does not say walk near Christ. Paul does not write walk with Christ. Paul says walk in Christ. Commentator Mark Johnston points out that walking in Christ is not a cooperative effort. It's not a cooperative venture with Christ. But a walk in Christ is one in which we are completely and utterly dependent upon him. The principle is very simplistic. The conduct of a Christian always corresponds to their relationship with Christ. The more one knows Christ, the more he wants to know Christ. The more one knows Christ, the more he conforms to Christ. By nature, we are imitators, willing to follow others and even conform our behavior to their expectations. A child will conform to his mother and father. A student conforms to their mentor. Even the nation conforms to the leadership of that nation. For the Christian, though, the call is to conform to Christ. If indeed you and I have received Christ, let us conform to the image of Christ. If we have something to receive here, as the text says, then that tells us that God has given us something. In this case, he has given us Christ. This is a gift of God, the offering of his own son to those who need the work of his son. Interestingly, receiving Christ is not the end of life. It is the beginning of life. Receiving Christ initiates a lifetime of following, a lifetime of transforming. Never will it be complete during our time while we traverse this earthly terrain. 
sons. We are sojourners after all. And so to walk in him is to be made in his image. It means daily submitting to who he is. Daily seeking out who he is. Daily surrendering to who he is. And daily shifting into who he is. Why would anyone ever want to do such a thing? Because he is the Christ. He is Jesus. And he is the Lord, it says. Through scripture, Jesus is proclaimed as Jesus. He's proclaimed as Christ. Sometimes he's proclaimed as Jesus Christ. Or other times it's Jesus the Lord. Sometimes he's even described as the Lord Jesus Christ. But never do these names and titles appear in this order anywhere else in Scripture. When Paul says Christ, Jesus, the Lord. He is Jesus, God's own son, God's own sacrifice. In the previous chapter, chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord over creation and the Lord over the church in verses 15 through 20. If Jesus is Lord, the only response is submission to him. And he is Christ. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who will save people from their sins. Very few people want to be saved from their sins. Almost everybody wants to be saved from the penalty of their sin. But very few want to be saved from their sin itself. Most people want to continue to live in their sin, but free from its harm and its effect. It's like someone who spends every week hitting the bars and saying, I want to enjoy this, but I don't want the physical effects and impairment and the lack of control that comes with drinking this much. I don't want the health effects that it may cause to my organs. I don't want the spiritual effect that may come from my relationships with others. And certainly I don't want to deal with the consequences it may have on others. But there will always be consequences. Through his son, God's not offering to save people from the consequences. In fact, sin, even in our forgiven state, has consequences. Instead, God offers something far, far greater. He offers salvation from sin itself. The freedom to reject and overcome sin. To be free from the control of sin. That's why walking in him is possible. Because we are free from sin and able to turn to him. That's why there's this constant call to conformity to Christ. Because liberated from sin, we are finally able to do just that. Conform to the image of Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. Having the power to free people from error. Having the power to free people from misery. And having the power to free people from themselves. Dick Lucas states, true conversion must imply a recognition of Christ's right to be my Savior. I want you to note, second, 
the construction of a Christian found in the first part of verse 7. It says, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. I propose to you that a Christian sojourner is defined by his construction. Christ's likeness is dependent upon knowing Christ. None of us can expect to idolize a famous celebrity, a world leader, a notable historical figure, maybe even our own family, and then expect to be transformed into Christ more. To be like Christ, we must idolize Christ. And so our text tells the believers in Colossae, be rooted and built up in him. That is, that they cannot allow themselves to be taken in by the false teachers. Instead, they must place Christ as Lord over their church and Lord over their lives, following nothing but him alone. They must be influenced by, by others only as much as those others are influenced by Christ. What I mean by that is you look at Paul and he says, follow me. He's not saying, follow me, Paul. He's saying, follow me as much as I follow Christ. It's worth noting here the construction of verse 7. And here's an English lesson for you today. Our text utilizes all past tense verbs with the exception of the last. It says, rooted, built up, established but in reality that first word rooted is the only one in the past tense the others are in present participles meaning they say being built up being established the legacy standard bible captures it best translating this verse this way having been firmly rooted it already happened past tense and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and abounding with thanksgiving. The text isn't calling the Colossians to be rooted. It acknowledges that by responding and affirming Christ's lordship, they are already rooted. God has already planted them. And so it means to exist in this settled state. When you listen to the word rooted, what image comes to mind? We think of gardens, we think of plants, and we think of trees. A tree that is firmly planted or firmly rooted is one that is stable and settled. It's not wavering with every change of the wind. When someone turns to his son, God the potter becomes God the gardener firmly planting a believer in the ground so that he is assured of his position in Christ. This is why the psalmist can compare himself to an unbeliever who rejects God in Psalm 52. Our text this morning that we read, he talks about the way of the unrighteous. And then you come to this verse. Beginning in verse 4, it says, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him the unrighteous man, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, 
but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. The believer then is already firmly planted. And now having been firmly planted, he must continue growing. He continues to be constructed, is what the text says. The imagery of that word is unmistakable. It's calling our attention to a building, one that is in the midst of construction. It is carefully crafted. The wood is placed precisely where it needs to be to give the proper structure to the building. Each nail is placed in an organized manner to then give strength to that structure and to the framing. And then each piece is added on to the next so that it is built with full integrity. I'm always amazed when I travel to other countries at the number of unfinished buildings. It doesn't matter if you're in the heart of South America or the heart of Africa. There they stand, these unfinished buildings. And the reason is always the same. The owners didn't calculate the cost, and now they must wait until the funds come in to begin anew. And by that point, it's not uncommon for the structure to deteriorate even more and really have to be rebuilt by the time those new funds come in. But that's not how God works with us. When he calls us to salvation, he sets this foundation, and he does so with the intentions of completing the entire structure. He never leaves the building unfinished, but piece by piece, it is built to its glorious magnificence. The problem is that so many are not living as foreigners or sojourners, but as residents of this land. So they begin to build their house, their dwelling, according to their plans. They set roots in a land where they don't belong. The soil for them, the soil for believers, is not fertile for them here. They need to be where God will plant them. And that begins by being rooted in Christ. Paul pictures this well in 1 Corinthians 3. Beginning in verse 9, hear the description. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. Now if anyone build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by the fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you now know that... Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
I love it. We are God's temple. We are the temple of God's spirit. A building constructed for the purposes of God. We cannot let that building remain unfinished. Every day we must submit to God and allow him to construct us. To construct us into an edifice of magnificence, not so that it will honor us, but so that it will honor him. This is the Lord's work. The words rooted and built up, they're passive. That's another English lesson. They're indicating that it is God who does the work. And then it says in him in our text, that is in Christ. On this side of heaven, there is no more magnificent place to be, no more magnificent place to reside than in Christ. It is well said that I am safer in Christ's hand in the fire than I am out of his hand, out of the fire. We are either alive in Christ or dead out of Christ. I want you to note third, the charge in the second part of verse 7. The word of God reads, established in the faith, just as you were taught. The Christian sojourner is defined by his charge. The charge of the Christian is to be steadfast, to be established in faith. They've been in the process of being built up of what we just saw, according to that previous phrase in verse 7. But now that building must be established. It's not enough simply to place a brick and then place another brick Because as you get to a certain point, those bricks are going to fall over. And then the work would be for nothing. But as the bricks are placed, they are cemented together in order to make a building that is firm so that it becomes increasingly stable. So important is this concept that Paul closes his letter to the Corinthians, charging them, be steadfast, be immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. To the Thessalonians, a charge to be established takes the form of comforting their hearts. And he says, establish your hearts in every good work and word. And lest we forget Peter in the midst of all this discussion of Paul and his letters, Peter has something to say on the subject too. He said, Beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. The stability, though, does not come in anything of our choosing. The exhortation here in Colossians chapter 2 is to be stable or be defined and established in the faith. Notice the text, and let me give you your final English lesson today. Notice a definite article. What is a definite article? It is the word the. It's defining something specific. Verse 7 says to be established in the faith. It's not in a faith. It's not in some faith. It is in the faith. That is the only one and true faith. The legitimate faith. 
If anyone is established in anything but this faith, the faith taught by the word of God, he will never truly be established according to this verse. He'll be like a poorly constructed building, and he or she will fall at the, at the first false teaching. Here's the connection between Christian life and Christian theology. It is the teachings of the faith that cements believers so that they are stable. For this reason, Jude writes, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you and to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith was delivered once for all to the saints. There is no need for another faith because this faith, this one alone is sufficient and it is worth contending for. In light of the false teaching taking place in Colossae, this was an important point. Paul calls on them to be established in the faith and to use the words of Jude to contend for the faith. The Colossians needed to be established in their faith so that they could withstand the shakiness that comes from the presence of false teaching. I dare say that being established in the faith means that when we hold to wrong, incomplete, or unintelligible teachings, we will also more readily recognize them when someone contends for the faith with us and points out when we're wrong. One last important point on this subject. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.21, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. As I stated earlier, this is a passive verb, meaning that we do not establish ourselves, but the Lord establishes us. How does he do that? By giving us his word that we may endlessly pour over it in deep thought. By giving us his spirit to work in our lives, by imparting truth. Sometimes he gives us others. First in the fellowship of the body of Christ, a body of believers. But he also gifts people in ways that they may be able to teach us. That's why I read books and that's why I listen to sermons. Because I know that I am not smart enough on my own to come up with some of this stuff. I have no doubt that as I read the text, indeed, the Spirit's going to work. But I also know that God has gifted men with the ability, and women, with the ability to sometimes teach truth that I would not have gotten otherwise. And so sometimes he uses others. In the same way, God establishes us through the preaching of his word. And sometimes... According to James and Peter and Paul, it's done through suffering. A sojourner cannot be established in the folly of this world. He must be established in the faith in Christ. And finally, as I need to close, maybe I won't, I don't know. I want you to notice the custom of a sojourner. 
noted by the phrase abounding in thanksgiving at the closing of verse 7. The Christian sojourner is defined by his custom. The mark of the Christian life is the one of thankfulness. With an endless record of things to be thankful for, the Christian can be continuously thankful. And so his custom is to be thankful in all circumstances. Thankfulness is not merely a ritualistic nature. It's the ongoing practice of the Christian. Are you joyful? Give thanks to the Lord. Are you content having all that you need? Give thanks to the Lord. Are you hopeful? Give thanks to the Lord. Are you suffering? Paul tells us in Philippians, give thanks to the Lord. Are you enduring anguish and adversity? Give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 136, our call to worship this morning, three times we read, give thanks to the Lord. The author of Hebrews exhorts readers in chapter 13, and he teaches them about sacrifices that please God. And then you come to verse 15, and he says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. A sacrifice of praise from our lips. What an incredible description that is of thankfulness. It cost nothing but pride to give thanks to the Lord. And yet pride is one of the biggest sacrifices of all for so many of us. And it's a sacrifice that few people are actually willing to allow. But Thanksgiving humbly says, or is saying, I didn't do this on my own. In fact, it says I needed the help of another. Specifically, I needed the help of God. When we thank God, we're not only acknowledging our gratitude, we're acknowledging our dependence upon him. Nothing comes apart from the will and work of God. And therefore, all that we are, all that we have, should cause us to bow before him in thanksgiving, with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, I would say. I will tell you this. A proper understanding of God will always result in a proper thanksgiving to God. When we understand who God is, and what God has done, and why he has done it, the only response of a genuine believer is thanksgiving. But pay attention to the character of this thanksgiving. What does Paul write? Abounding in thanksgiving. Those who are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith are abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving, that is to say overflowing, meaning there is an excess of thanksgiving. I'm reminded of the story of Martin Luther, who before his departure from the Catholic Church would go to confessional, and like any good Catholic would do, and he would be so overcome with his sins that he would spend hours in the confessional sharing every impure thought, every selfish motive. So much time he would spend here that he became a burden to the priest. 
This is the picture I have when I think of what it means to be abounding in thanksgiving. One who is so overcome with God that he spends hours lavishing him with thanksgiving, heaping praise on our Lord. What do we have to be thankful for? What can we thank our Lord for? Maybe we need to begin by thanking him that we don't have to spend hours in confessional like Luther. Who has the time or the resilience? But that's not a bad place to start. Why don't we have to go to a priest for confession? Because we have the great high priest. Thank the Lord. Because this high priest also gave his life for our sins. Thank the Lord. Because this high priest has transferred us from darkness and into God's kingdom, it says in Colossians 1. Thank the Lord. And because this high priest has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of the light, also in Colossians 1. Thank the Lord. The list of God's gifts are ceaseless, and so our response of thanksgiving is also ceaseless. A sojourner is defined by his custom to give thanks to the Lord. There's a protective element to thanksgiving as well. In commenting on this passage, one commentator writes, Those without a deep sense of thankfulness are especially vulnerable to doubt and spiritual delusion. Like each of the other points that I just made to you, thankfulness is a way for the Colossians to continue guarding themselves from false teaching that's infiltrating the church. The one who is thankful has a humble view of self and an exalted view of God, placing him in the position to rightly perceive God. The Christian is nothing more than a sojourner in this land. He is traversing this world in anticipation of the next world. What is it that makes a sojourner different than a permanent residence? First, the sojourner is defined by his Christ. When the Christian walks across this earth, he does so in Christ. He is not conditioned to the ways of this world, the ways of this culture, but he is consumed by the ways of Christ. Second, the sojourner is defined by his construction. A sojourner cannot set down roots in this world or even build up a home. Instead, he must be ready to move at a moment's notice. He must be ready to go to the next destination, always walking in Christ towards that final destination, which is heaven at Christ's side. Third, the sojourner is defined by his charge. His charge is to be established in the faith. The one who is looking towards his final destination is not concerned about the convictions and faith of this current world. He is seeking to be established in the faith of God's world. And finally, the sojourner is defined by his custom of thanksgiving. He is abounding in thanksgiving, grateful that in this journey across the land, the Lord has sustained Let us not forget that we are sojourners in this land. We are not called to be permanent residents, 
We're not called to be here and establish roots and firmly plant ourselves here. And yet that is what many believers do. They become content with this way of life, complacent in their convictions of faith and convinced to remain. They become inhabitants, permanent dwellers. We could say they become citizens of this world. They have been consumed by the grandiose promises and conned by the fraudulent claims. They are appeased by a counterfeit heaven, exchanging the glorious satisfaction of a walk in Christ for the gloomy condemnation of a walk with Satan. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, you are a great, glorious, wise God, Lord. Father, your plan is perfect. Your will is perfect, Lord. And so, Father, we rest in that. Despite the difficulties and discrepancies of this world, Lord, Father, we know that you have placed us here temporarily for purposes to accomplish your will, to glorify you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we indeed would rest in that. But Father, help us to not become planted here. Help us to not be content with the ways of this world or the ways of self. But, Lord, may we seek out your kingdom the one that is to come. May that be where our citizenship resides and may we constantly have a longing for that. And may that longing then impact how we walk across this land. Father, we're grateful that in that, you've not only given us your word, you've given us the faith, taught us what that means, but most importantly, you've given us your son, You've given us Jesus Christ so that indeed we may be rooted and built up in him, not swayed by the ways of this world, but rather ready, expectant of the world that is to come. And so, Father, just continue to convict our hearts this morning. Thank you for your spirit which guides us in this endeavor, guides us across this land as sojourners, as transients for a time. We give you all praise and honor. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.